Welcome to Spiro Avenue. And now your host, Justin Spiro. Yes, welcome to Spiro Avenue. Happy to be back with you after a little hiatus. Back with Jag the DJ, our producer. And now Jag in Detroit. Jag in Detroit, and we are happy to have him in Detroit. <laughs> I had a, a wonderful week in Paris. It was a, a good time, my wife's 30th birthday present. But now it is time to get back to the Detroit sports grind. And let, let me start with this today. This whole Stan Van Gundy stick to sports topic has been really big in the media lately, and it was spurred by this protest in the NFL, and it's been a very polarizing issue throughout the country. And really, this is the era of polarization politically, and you have such a defined side of the aisle. You have the left and you have the right, and they just hate each other. And Stan Van Gundy came out a few days ago and issued a statement acknowledging the protest and the situation uh, going on in the country and the issues with the president. And he was asked about his stance for his players going forward, if they choose to protest, and also what he thinks of the NFL players protesting. Let's start with that audio first and then respond. I applaud the professional athletes using their platform to voice their opinions. I encourage our players to be engaged, involved citizens. Peaceful protest is a hallmark of our democracy and has been an impetus for social change throughout our history. While people can differ on the issues, no one should seek to discourage freedom of speech. The athletes involved in these protests should be respected for exercising their rights of free speech in an appropriate and nonviolent manner. And I think Stan Van Gundy is, is spot on, and that's the right stance to take. And really, when you look at these situations and why they are so polarizing and why they really upset people so much, it's not that they're speaking out. And everyone says, you know, oh, stick to sports. And, and that was what he was basically saying, and he addressed that directly in a different part of that uh, same press conference saying, what does stick to sports even mean? I mean, are you suggesting that athletes don't have a voice, that they can't speak? And he's right, but athletes can speak as long as people agree with them. And if they don't agree with the athlete's speech, that's when you get the stick to the sports stuff. And that goes for really anything. I mean, if you agree with us, great. If you disagree, we're mad. And at the end of the day... These people are citizens just like anybody else. I mean, when you look at the people that are saying stick to sports, they're telling an athlete, shut your mouth, basically, just don't talk about politics. It's usually coming from who, like a, a plumber or an accountant? Should a plumber saying that just stick to plumbing, just stick to, to toilets? Should an accountant stick to balance sheets? I mean, the people saying stick to sports... Unless they're like politicians, elected officials themselves, I mean, they're commenting on politics all the time. So I don't know why athletes are somehow exempt. And they also they also say stick to sports when they disagree with the athlete. Would you tell J.J. Watt to stick to sports when he raised $20 million for hurricane relief in well, Houston? I will say that's a little different because J.J. Watt, and I'll get to that in a minute, J.J. Watt was a more substantive advocacy um, just effort on his part. So I think that's a little more meaningful. I think some of these protests were a little hollow, but that's uh, separate from the fact that they're allowed to do it, they should be allowed to do it, and they should not be shut down. And, you know, you look at, there's such a huge difference here. When Tim Tebow was kneeling, obviously for a different reason, it was about honoring God, he, he's a devout Christian, you had a lot of people typically, not always, but typically on the left side of the aisle that were vocally against it. And they said, you know, uh, they basically wanted him to shut up. I mean, they didn't, they didn't like the demonstration. He was made fun of. He was ridiculed. Colin Kaepernick takes a knee for a completely different reason, given the people on the left tend to celebrate it. 
And conversely, the people on the right who loved Tebow's kneeling suddenly hate the concept of kneeling. Now they want you to just stick to sports, stand there at attention, don't bring attention to yourself for whatever reason, whether it's praying to God or, or issuing a protest. So you see the hypocrisy. You have Kaepernick kneeling, Tebow kneeling for completely different reasons, granted. But you have the left loves one and hates the other, and the right loves one and hates the other. And it's just this hypocrisy we, we see over and over again. And what I've heard a lot from the people on, on the right, so to speak, and again, it's not strictly a left-right issue, but typically the people that are against Kaepernick's protest are on the right. Typically what you hear from them, and I've heard it often, is I, I just don't like the anthem being protested. I, I have no issue with the kneeling. I have no issue with the demonstration of some kind, but they shouldn't disrespect the anthem. Now, whether or not I think they should disrespect the anthem, I don't. I don't love the protest. But I, just don't get fooled by that because people, the proof's in the pudding. If you remember, LeBron James, when he was with the Miami Heat in 2012, they organized a picture in the locker room before a game, ironically enough, against the Detroit Pistons, where they're all wearing their hoodies and they're looking down, and it was an homage to Trayvon Martin, and that was obviously a hot-button topic at that time. And the people on the right went absolutely nuts. LeBron got crucified for that imagery, and, and the, the whole stick-to-sports narrative came out again during the Trayvon Martin thing, which was in the locker room, not during the National Anthem, not even on the floor. It was a picture they posted that they arranged, and you still got the same stick-to-sports narrative. So the whole don't let people hide behind oh, it's just about the anthem, because that's not the case. And if they were protesting in some other context, people would still be bothered by it if they didn't agree with the protest. It's not just the anthem. And what you get with this is it's sort of this concept we see again and again. People don't really want information. They just want affirmation. They don't want to hear something that they don't agree with. So being outspoken, whether you're on the left or the right, being outspoken is considered a good thing so long as we agree. And honestly, anybody can applaud the free expression of someone they agree with. I mean, that's the easiest thing in the world. Anyone can say, I love what they're saying, so they should have the right to say it. There's nothing impressive about that. The question is, can you embrace freedom of expression regardless of the nature of that expression? That's the real challenge. And this concept goes for anything. So until we stop trying to shut people down with a stick-to-sports blast, or you're racist, or you're a liberal snowflake, we're never going to make any progress. Because anybody can sit there and listen to the speech of someone that they agree with and nod and smile and say it's, it's the best thing they ever heard and good for you for speaking up. It's a lot harder to hear something you don't agree with and say, you know what, I disagree with you, but good for you for speaking your mind, good for you for advocating for a position, this is America, it's wonderful. You don't really hear that. Now, obviously, there's exceptions. I mean, I don't think we should embrace hate speech. Charlottesville. Charlottesville. But even Charlottesville, those people had a right to do it. And, and, and I think that I think that's where the that's where the difference with Charlottesville Charlottesville was. You had they had a right to speak, they had a right to demonstrate. But when they started inciting violence, that's where it get that's that's where that line gets a little bit gray. Well, right, and it, it, the, that whole thing was gray because what does inciting violence really mean? I mean, I think we all agree if you say I'm about to stab you, that's inciting violence. But is it inciting violence to to say a racial slur? I I don't know the answer. I just that that area is kind of gray. Some people would say it is. Some people would say it isn't. But and that's really the problem. And I, I don't know a single person. I don't. And maybe you you do. I don't know a single person that has been bludgeoned into a change of opinion where they were told that they were an idiot or a racist or a bigot or a snowflake or whatever it is. You hear these things from the left and the right. 
I don't know anyone that has been bludgeoned into a change of opinion. Justin, you talk about the anthem protest specifically. You're right about how everybody wants to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to see their side. The people who are against the protests uh, don't want to hear that it's because of racial injustice in this country. The people who are for the protests don't want to hear that some veterans and other Americans are insulted by, by the flag and, and, and so-called, you know, in their opinion, dishonoring the flag. Some of them which have American flag T-shirts, which is all again against the same clause in the Constitution. So it's all, it always goes back to exactly what you said. Hear what you want to hear. And until we start having a, an, a, a discussion where we listen to the other side instead of trying to shout them down, you know, Bob Costas had a great piece on CNN about this last week where he talked about maybe it, tur- it turns into a discussion. Until we start hearing each other, nothing's going to change. Right. And, and that's this is something I've seen again and again. Look, if you want if you want something to take place, whether it's, you know, free marriage rights for for the LGBT community, which I happen to believe in. If you are advocating for a particular position. Out of purely selfish reasons, from a strategic standpoint, there's no kindness of our heart stuff. You can cast that out the window. I'm talking about if you're a pragmatist trying to accomplish something, trying to advocate for a position. Your position should be a little bit gentler than we see today. Because, again, you're not going to bludgeon people into a change of heart. So if if you really care about anything, you are advocating for any position that you purport to really care about, you gotta tone it down, and and that's why I love this Stan Van Gundy thing about you know this whole stick to sports. Why can't these athletes speak their minds? What does that even mean? Like, are you, you're basically calling them stupid? You're demeaning them? He said that it was condescending. I agree with all of that, and and selfishly, I view sports partially, not entirely, but partially as a little bit of escapism. Sure. Maybe you have a tough day at work. Frankly, selfishly, I don't want to see it. I don't like these protests for any reason, whether I agree with the cause or not. But I still applaud it because, you know, despite my own selfish reasons, this is an unrealistic desire that I have not to be faced with this stuff because these are human beings. These are citizens of this country that have the right to do it. And these athletes have a freedom of expression that's more important than my desire not to be bothered by it. And that's the challenge. Whether I want to see the protests or not, you, you can't bludgeon these people into silence. You can't impose Oh, I don't want to hear it, so shut up. It you just call them sons of bitches on Twitter. It, that was embarrassing. It's just one thing after another with that guy. I mean, just the, the decorum or lack thereof. But I, I liked what Stan Van Gundy did. I don't agree with I thought he came in a little harsh on the Trump supporters about a year ago, uh, you know, for the same reasons that we already talked about. I don't think you can call people stupid and really accomplish anything. I don't think it's effective. But I do applaud what he did standing up to the plate for his players, players throughout the NFL. I think it's the appropriate position, excuse me, appropriate position to take. And if we don't start to look at things a little bit differently, we're just going to be spinning our wheels. I and mean, we're not going to make any progress on any of these things. And again, you are doing your cause a disservice if you're just going to shout down the other guy. You're not doing yourself any favors. If anything, you're emboldening the opposition and, and hurting your cause. So something to think about. And look, 
I'm not I'm not preaching from the high horse here. I do it too. This we is, all do. This is like this is like me talking to myself at, at some point because there's times I, I'm just like I disagree with someone so passionately and say you don't know what the hell you're talking about. I catch myself doing it. So and it's a lot easier behind the keyboard nowadays too to be a keyboard jockey and send oh, an yeah. angry tweet than it is to deal with somebody face to face. I would say like for every 100 times someone's a jerk on Twitter, there's like one of the 100 people that would actually say half. Uh, of what they said online in person. I mean, it's it's very rare for someone to actually be that much of a sociopath. As they can be in 140 characters or maybe 280 now. Exactly, from the, the safety of the keyboard. I, I, I hate cliches in general, but the whole keyboard warrior thing, it's kind of true. I mean, it, it just is. I, I, I walk around all day, every day in public like all you do, and uh, I don't see the vitriol that I see online. I mean, there's got <laughs> these same people I assume may have computers. The same person you're seeing at Somerset Mall or wherever is probably the same guy that's heckling people on Twitter. But you don't see him going up to people in the food court and saying, hey, you know, F you, you dummy. I mean, it, there, there's definitely a distinction here. But we're going to move on. This is the the end of the Tigers baseball season, which is a merciful end, to say the least. I'm excited to be done with it. And I'm even more excited, perhaps, to have our good friend Chris Castellani join us. And it's funny, we spoke to him a few months ago, and he was just starting to kind of blow up on Twitter. He was recently featured on Barstool. So when we first had him on a few months ago, he was uh, probably about 15% as popular as he is now. Our good friend Chris Castellani, he is the host of the Baseball Casanova podcast. He has become more and more famous by the week. He has far surpassed uh, many people's expectations of a little guy from Lansing that no one thought could do it. And now, look, Chris, you're bigger than all of us. Welcome back to Spiro Avenue. <laughs> well, that's, I appreciate the introduction, man. That, uh, that means a lot, and uh, I'm happy to be back. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to have you on this show like in two months, the way you're, you're blowing up. I, you're you're going to lose my number and not be paying attention anymore. But uh, Well, I, once uh, three, three games from now, I, I, I feel like uh, – uh, that uh, whatever popularity there's been is going to die down pretty quickly. So uh, I don't think you have to worry about that. Humble as always, Chris. So let's talk about this nightmare of a baseball team that you have had highs and lows really day in and day out. I don't know how you do it. I mean, I, I check out, I can check back in once or twice a week. You know, this team has been so disappointing. I'm going to get straight to it. I mean, I am looking ahead to 2018. I've been looking ahead for a while, frankly. I am on the 120 loss train. Not saying I think it'll happen because I don't think it will, but I'm rooting for it. I want to see it happen. I want something to root for. We're, we know we can't root for wins, so I need to root for this team to finish dead last, lose 120 games, and finish the job that this organization failed to do in 2003 when they choked away history and won the last couple games of that season to avoid the record. I mean, where are you at? I mean, you are the ultimate fan of this team. Do you want to see them just completely bottom out next year? Uh, you know, it, it, it's... it's it, Okay, let me say this. For the first half, no. Because I want to see... Uh, well, they won't be good. Uh, I, I think... Uh, if they can be, you know, I don't know, ten games, fifteen games under five hundred, it, it'll be uh, somewhat acceptable, I guess. Uh, and but by the time, if and when they decide to be sellers at the deadline, which hopefully trading Michael Falmer as much as I, I love watching the guy pitch, uh, 
the, the return they could get back for him is bigger than anybody else on the roster right now. Uh, also, I can't root for it just because if, if it was an Osmus team, maybe. But uh, I don't want there to. I don't want a new manager to come in there and lose 120 games because I. I don't. Well, the roster itself is by no means a team that's going to be able to compete for anything. It's in your first year. You lose 120 games. <sighs> that would not be. Uh, that would not be ideal. But I, uh, I think we'll, we'll see. I, I think that the next manager is coming in, and this is just a prediction. I don't have inside information on this. I think the next manager will come in. Will come in on like a five-year deal, which is. Very rare for a, a, a first-time manager, which is what I expect they, they may hire. Certainly rare for a, a non-marquee manager, which I expect them to hire, whether they have experience or not. But I think they're going to have to offer at least four. I mean, typically you see three with an option for a fourth in these in these situations. They have to offer at least four to even get somebody here. So, I mean, let's talk about the manager. I'm sure you've read at least some of these articles talking about Cora and Kapler and uh, all these names being bandied about. Maniac has come up a few times. Do you have a, a feel for who you would like to see in the position? Well, I mean, I've been touting Kapler for a long time, uh, and I know that's that's kind of the 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 hot choice, not just through, throughout the the ti- kind of among Tigers fans, but throughout Major League Baseball. I mean, it's it, he's been one of those guys that people have said it's going to happen at some point. He'll be a manager uh, either when. Uh, but a lot of it's going to be up to him. I mean, he's he's got himself a pretty good gig right now. Uh, really, there's not uh, there's not many guys that I would be super upset with as long as it's not anybody within the organization. Uh, I and and that's the thing with with when they signed Osmus originally, the idea behind it wasn't terrible it's that they just got a guy who didn't do his homework that they i don't i don't maybe he nailed the interview or something but going out and getting a young guy who played for for a long time in the major leagues who was a catcher uh was a smart idea but uh it, it was a nebrowski hire and, and they got a, a a young manager uh with an old uh with an old manager's mentality. I think with Avila in there, they want to get somebody that he's on the same page with a little bit more. And uh, whether that's somebody who's younger or not, uh, as long as it's somebody who I feel like can fit the system, uh, I'm fine with it. Even if they haven't managed before, I have no problem if they've never been a manager before coming in and starting. Because unlike Osmus, where I I would get to the point of pulling out my hair with people saying, Oh well, you know he's getting better as a manager. Yeah, but you couldn't afford to have that when, in his first year, he's given a team that's a ninety-win team. With with what they're what they have going forward, uh, I you know the teams it's gonna be a few years before they're even remotely close to good. Uh, they they can afford to get a manager who might go through a first-year struggle or two. And not hopefully not the way Austin did, but you know the occasional mishap. Right, and when that's going to happen with anybody. I don't. I mean, the most experienced manager in the world is going to make mistakes. Obviously, you know, you mentioned uh, maybe Ospis nailed the interview. I don't know if you recall, but Dombrowski said at the time it was the most impressive managerial interview he had ever had, and that's a guy that that's was right. an executive for like three decades at that point. So yeah, that's that guy's been in on a lot of interviews. So that was, he obviously did nail the interview. The apprehension with Cap, or not even for me, I just mean I think for the public perception, which should not matter, but it does, 
he is basically Brad Ausmus. He's a mediocre former big leaguer, former Tiger, very good looking, half Jewish. I mean, I it, it takes Yom Kippur off every yeah, year. I remember yeah. when, he was, when he was with the Red Sox that he uh, he would not play in the in an October game if it was Yom Kippur. Right, and this is like you have another guy, no managerial experience, good looking, former Tiger, mediocre player, but had a long career. He has a little bit of minor league experience. He uh, worked with the Red Sox affiliate in Greenville, South Carolina. But so I don't think he managed though. He did for like a year. Okay, it was okay. a year. Okay, I stand corrected. Stand corrected. But okay, limited limited experience. So I, you, I think that's a tough sell. I mean, he was my first pick. Um, you know, when they hired Osmus, Osmus was actually my second pick. So I mean, shows how much I knew. I, I I assumed that Osmus would be what he was not. I mean, that was granted a leap of faith, which I said at the time. I said, look, nobody knows how the guy's going to manage. My assumption was. Ivy League educated, former catcher. He talked the talk with analytics and playing lineups. And granted, they did a lot more shifting than they ever did under Jim Leland, which was good. But I, I, I thought that he was not what we thought he would be. I actually think Gabe Kapler would be what we hoped Osmus would have been. Be, I mean, he's a very analytical mind. But so Kapler's my pick. That's who you want. Who do you think they're actually going to hire? Uh, I think I, I think Alex Fora maybe. I know that's kind of one of the front runners right now, but uh, there's been a couple names that have been thrown around. I would be surprised if they go out and get somebody who's managed a major league team before. Obviously, a, Garden Hire's not coming here. Um, Ozzy Guillen's not coming here. I don't know why that rumor gets started every time. Uh, Whenever people are throwing around who, who Tiger's next manager should be, oh, Ozzie Guillen. Ozzie Guillen's not coming here, uh, nor do I want him to. Uh, I, I think uh, Cora's kind of the first name that jumps out at a lot of people. If I had a, if there was a dark horse candidate, uh, and I don't know if it's necessarily a dark horse just because I know a lot of people who, who feel that this guy would be a solid major league uh, manager, possibly Raul Ibanez if they wanted to, to really risk it. Uh, that's a guy, smart guy, similar, played in the league for a long time, but uh, had a lot of success and just, I mean, just retired a year or two ago and, uh, you know, I, I was a fairly good player up until the very end. So that's kind of the dark horse. If I, if I had to guess, I, I would say, uh, I would say Cora, but, my guess is as good as anybody else's right now. Well, Abanya's had a hand in a lot of Tigers' losses over the years, so he would actually be a perfect fit. So he would have a, a lot exactly. of hand in future yeah. well, Tigers' losses. Game, game one of the uh, ALCS, they tried, he tried to blow it for us. So, yes, uh, yeah, he was one of those yeah. Tiger killers, you know, not quite to the level of Jim Tomei, but he was up there. Uh, just, I mean, yeah, solid player, but just, just destroyed the Tigers year in and year out. Now, you mentioned Michael Fulmer earlier, the possibility of trading him. I talked about this a little bit with you earlier uh, this summer. I thought it made sense to trade him if you got the right offer. I'm not saying openly shop him, but these people that were like, I wouldn't trade him for the moon. Well, you know what? The moon's worth a little more than, than Michael Fulmer. I mean, if you, can get, <laughs> if you can get five or six pieces that are high end, the way this organization is, I think you do it. I never bought that you couldn't trade him. But Michael Fulmer, really, you guys have uh, a link to each other now that may never be severed. Because it was a rant you had about Michael Fulmer at the end of August of this season, talking about how he was clearly injured, the Tigers would not pull the plug on this guy and just shut him down. 
I'm going to play the clip for the audience who hasn't heard it. It's, it's pretty funny. This guy. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. Hide your kids. Hide your yeah. wife. If you have a maybe, kid maybe in the car. Maybe turn down your earphones if you're wearing them. There is no uh, beeping in this audio. So this is unedited clip of Chris Castellani after a, a struggling Mike Fulmer, Fulmer start at the end of August. And uh, Chris Castellani had just had uh, about enough there. So let's roll that 30-second clip. It's top of the eighth inning. I had to turn it off. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. I am not fucking around tonight. All right, first off, Michael Farmer, not very good tonight. Now, let me come here. Let me grab you by the collar and stick one in your ear hole. He's fucking injured! Am I the only fucking person who notices this? He's falling off the mound. He's wincing. He's grimacing. He's, he's in pain. He's not healthy. Okay, so obviously you were not thrilled at that point. Uh, that was <laughs> no. one, one of your more angry rants of the season, and it got you on Barstool. Uh, they got a real kick out of it. I, I, it was one of the funniest that I've ever seen of, of you, and that's saying something. Uh, you know, you talked about in that rant and throughout and other rants and, and tweets and whatnot, you were just hammering Brad Austin for this, saying, what are you doing? Get him out of there. Totally agree. But to what extent was Alvila responsible for this? Because I thought throughout, I, I agreed with you that he was visibly injured. It's like no one else in the organization saw this, but somehow the fans did. To what extent is the president and general manager responsible? He's in charge of the roster. Should he have not intervened and, and taken that decision out of Brad Auspice's hands? Okay, I do agree with you, and I think the idea – the idea of shutting him down for the season, that falls almost exclusively, maybe not fully, but a large portion of it falls on Alaviva's shoulders. Uh, I thought, you know, he contributed to that failure a lot. But it was Osmus's job to try to limit that damage. And in a game where, because when Fulmer came back, his first start, he was bad. And then he had a start against the Dodgers where he looked great. And it seemed like he was healthy and kind of seemed like they had, they had avoided disaster. And then he went I, one or two more starts. He's clearly injured. And at that point, uh, you have to try to limit the damage. And you have to get a good gauge on how your players are, are feeling at that particular time. And uh, in that game, it was just so – I mean – like, Kurt Schilling's bloody sock game was less noticeable to me like than what was uh, happening in that hey, game. Hey, it was hey, so... hey, I'm a Red Sox fan over here. Nothing will beat Kurt Schilling's bloody sock. <laughs> Not saying it wasn't an incredible performance, but as far as noticing, like, just that a pitcher is clearly unwell, it, it, it was amazing to me. Like, even last night in a game, Daniel Norris throws one pitch, and Brian Holiday jumps jumps up from his catcher's seat or uh, from his squat and, and comes running out to the mound. And yet they bear, they kept having chances. That was the other thing that blew my mind is that they had three or four chances where it would have made sense to pull them, and they never did. Uh, so, yeah, I think Avila failed in that aspect for sure, saying, look, dude, just shut the guy down. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, it, that particular game just drove me nuts because Whenever they went to NL Park, uh, it just showed how poor of a job Osmus would do with, as far in regards to strategy and player management. Um, because I think you can get by in the American League uh, being a mediocre manager. Uh, I don't think Ned Yost has ever done anything that makes me think, "Hey, this guy, you know, this this is a guy who can outsmart you in a game." But uh, it, when you get into NL parks, and you really have to focus on I, who, who I want pitch hitting, who do I want uh, 
coming onto the mound. Uh, it just showed the the, the colossal uh, failures of Brad Ausmus in that game. And that, that, to me, honestly, that was the first game where I said, I, th- I don't think he's coming back this year or next year. It right. took, like, I, did I want him to gone? Absolutely. But that game, I thought, it, it, I can't be the only person who notices this. And thankfully, uh, I wasn't. Chris Gasolani, Baseball Casanova Podcast, joining us. Uh, I, I thought that was spot on with the, the whole Fulmer rant. It, it spoke to a bigger issue of my concern with Avila as the caretaker of the organization. I mean, ultimately, it, it stops with him. It made no sense for Fulmer to be pitching through an obvious injury. He's one of the few assets you have that you can rely on going forward or you think you should be able to anyway. They were in a full rebuild. They, they had already been initiated at that point. Everybody but Verlander was already gone. He was out the door two days later. I assume Avila thought that that might happen. I, that, that made a, a big-picture uh, statement to me that I don't know if I can trust this guy. I, I'm very wavering on Avila. And you look at my biggest concern with this organization, and it predates him ever even showing up here with Dombrowski as his assistant, is the Tigers' pathetic draft record, both in the first round and in general. And this is something no one really talks about in this town. Like, the Lions get a lot of crap, rightfully so, for their poor drafting over the years. And the baseball draft's a much bigger crapshoot. It is hard. But if you look at the, the history of this team, this, this goes across many, many administrations. Like before Randy Smith was even here, they haven't drafted and developed one star position player since who? Alan Trammell? And even he wasn't, he's not even in the Hall of Fame, a very good player. But you look at the best two players they've drafted and developed as far as position players. Curtis Granderson and Travis Fryman, I mean, a couple of B, plus players. There's no superstars drafted, and that's it. It was like basically just those two guys. I mean, going forward, don't you think that this is uh, something that has to change because they're not going to be able to buy their way out of their poor drafting and scouting? They have to put more money into the scouting department. Where do you stand on that? Well, I mean, I'm with you 100%. I guess even I, I have overlooked uh, – the poor drafting choice because to me it's not like you said it is a crapshoot and it's not always the the choices and who you draft it's the way that you just that you choose to develop them and the type of players that you try to make them into i think that's where the biggest failure has been with some of these guys is that they've tried to make them into five tool players as as opposed to just saying hey look you can you got power just use it that's what, that a perfect example to me is is what the Rangers are doing with Joey Gallo, where Joey Gallo was expected to be somebody who who, who was you know a five tool guy who who had you know could play a lot of different positions, uh, but he's he's no he, he's not great defensively. He strikes out all the time, but they said, hey, look, you got power. Go ahead, bat two hundred, hit be be the new Adam Dunn. That's fine. Uh, but what they've done, especially with some of these position players, is, is it seems try to convert them into guys who can be, who can not just hit for power, but can try to go hit the ball to all fields and, and beat shifts. And well, in theory, that makes sense. I think it stunts a lot of these players' growth. And, and we've seen that uh, also just in the handling of some of these younger pitchers. Uh, I mean, Buck Farmer's no good, but the way they handled them from the beginning has been just atrocious. I mean, calling them up way too early, uh, and you know they, the inconsistency as far as is, is he starting? Is he coming out to bullpen? Oh, now he's in AAA. Um, so I, I'm with you as far as the draft 
drafting goes, uh, but it's the, the the development that I have a bigger issue with because you don't draft a guy uh, in without uh, seeing that there's clearly potential there and uh, getting uh, <clears throat> sorry and so uh, to me I, I think the bigger issue is is just the development of these players how is it that they go from guys who who show a lot of promise early on to guys who just tank Chris before we let you go I do have one question for you and this comes from a Red Sox fan I grew up in Boston so I'd like to say the Red Sox are my wife and the Tigers are my mistress uh, as a <laughs> as a Tigers fan and a pretty big Tigers fan. As we get toward the playoffs here in 2017, are you one of the Tigers fans that's rooting for Verlander to get a ring with Houston, or could you care less? You know, honestly, it's a it's a weird year, but it, it's a good year because of all the teams that are in the postseason. Mm-hmm. If I would be okay with any one of them winning it, it honestly, I, I it, it's like last year, the last couple of years, I was I was rooting for the Cubs. I wanted to see baseball history. Oh, sure. They had done, they had done things the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to see that. So if Verlander, uh, I'll be rooting for him when he starts, but there's really no team uh, in this postseason that I look at and say, you know, that's just that's, that's not a likable team. Or, or uh, even the Yankees, who, who Tigers got in a brawl with. Uh, they're, they, there's players on that team who I really like, and I think Girardi's done a great job there. Uh, I guess I, I would ideally, I think it would be cool to see uh, a uh, Verlander, uh, JD Martinez uh, go go up against each other in the World Series. That sure. would be kind of surreal. Yeah, uh, seeing that matchup, uh, especially the way both those guys have been playing, especially JD, who's just been unbelievable. So I, I would love to see Verlander get his ring, but it, there's a lot of teams in this postseason who've waited a long time uh, and. I just kind of want to see see a team that's uh, and see their fan base get rewarded, whoever that may be. Fair enough. Chris Castellani, Baseball Casanova Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Hope to have you in again as the Tigers make some big splashes in free agency. Um, no, that's a joke, but we'll have you yeah, in. Exactly. To, we'll, we'll, we'll have you in to discuss when they sign absolutely nobody and we can uh, maybe drink the poison together. Uh, it's the Spiro Avenue Podcast with Justin Spiro. And now we are joined by James Gorman calling in from Louisville. He was in St. Louis yesterday, born and raised in Detroit, and he exiled himself from this area for college and really never looked back. James Gorman, longtime friend of mine. Thanks for joining us. What's up, Spee? So nice intro. Thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. You know, you're in, you're in Louisville these days. Are there like people running around like with uh, jumping in front of cars? Yeah, jumping in front of cars like SSRI prescriptions. You know, handle their depression. What's going on with that? What's the scene no? Like? That's not the take at all. Really, I mean, that's not the. T- I know my brother uh, who uh, is at Louisville right now for business school knows some people, and uh, Patino was on like the first flight out. He's in Miami right now. Uh, but they think that there's other there's gonna be other schools that are gonna be a part of this too. Like it's not just the Louisville thing. It's gonna be other schools. So they're just they're hanging on. Is there a sense that he's uh, that he had nine lives and he finally got busted, or is it just all right? Well, we're just the first domino to fall, like you said. I think it's the first domino. I have you know I haven't really talked to many people. I just talked to my brother, but I think it's just the first domino to fall. But he we are, he always I mean he was kind of a sketchy guy to begin with. I mean he's you know he's cheating on his wife. He got, uh, I think he was hooking up with a girl late night, 
in one of the, uh, the Louisville establishments here. There was a story the about, here. Yeah, an Italian restaurant after hours. That story got out for a while, yep. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. I think the thing with him is, and this is really everyone involved in this investigation, typically when you have a federal investigation, the FBI is involved, the first round of indictments are usually the people that they consider easy targets who are likely to flip, and it is typically the first domino to fall, particularly in an investigation spanning multiple years, this many players involved. So I think it's not only likely but inevitable that there will be more dominoes to fall here. They are setting up their their entire play here as the FBI, and they expect that some of these guys are going to flip for favorable prosecution deals. Right. So that, that's what I Notice how quiet the U.K. fans have been. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> they, they should be celebrating this, right? <laughs> They're not saying a word. And usually if it was one thing, like if, you know, they were, I mean, they were, I mean, we, I go back and forth between Lexington sometimes to watch the horse races, and there's U.K. fans there, and, they were all up, you know, they were talking some smack about the uh, the stripper thing or the hooker thing, whatever was going on. And then as soon as they got to the uh, the corruption stuff, they're just, they're dead silent. They're just <laughs> waiting for that, for that shoe to drop on that. That's going to be funny if if if, uh, if that goes with Calipari. Because that's going to, I mean, Louisville, I, I think I sent this to you in the text the other day, that Louisville per capita that watches more college basketball than anywhere else in the United States. Yeah, number one. That's uh, Number one. Not, not, so, a, not a shock. I mean, so, I mean, you're you're in Louisville now, uh, bouncing back and forth between Louisville and St. Louis. You've been outside of the state of Michigan for a long time, occasional visits back in, but I know you still follow our teams that we watched growing up. You are a, a distant viewer, a distant witness of the carnage in Detroit. Three of the four teams are, frankly, a nightmare right now. The Detroit Lions of all teams are carrying the flag for the whole city. I certainly What's don't, up with that? I, I I mean, what do you what do you make of this? This is the best time for you to be out of state right now, and the entire time you've been gone. You have to look in. I mean, I I am in this every day. You're on the outside looking in. What do you make of the scene in Detroit? Is this as depressing as you can remember it? So the Lions are like the are rolling. And I know we that game, whatever you know, the, the Falcons maybe should have won, I know, whatever. But the outlook for the Tigers the Red Wings and the Pistons both suck or all suck. That is the strangest thing because the Lions always suck, and then usually one of the three teams over there sort of carry the city. Or usually the Red Wings for 22 years. This yeah. is, I mean, I, 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 and I'm all in on the, the Lions for the next five years too. I think that they have great prospects. It's just strange to say that. I was enjoying watching football on Sunday or even on last week when they played the, the New York Giants. I enjoyed watching that. Before it's just, you know, you're watching Stafford run around and, you know, throw interceptions because he can't get any protection. It's just strange to watch Stafford. He looks like he's having fun out there. It, it, it is a total contrast. The fact that the Lions are carrying the flag for the city cracks me up. And really, the, the Tigers are at rock bottom. I mean, I think this is going to be, even if they don't lose 119 games, I think we're in that realm where you're losing in excess of 100 games. That's what I expect they'll be at next year. I think it's going to be a disaster. It wasn't always so sad. You and I have had some great – Tigers road trips, uh, just incredible experiences. Jag, our producer here, is Boston born and raised, diehard Red Sox fans, and we had a great, we we had a great, and then not so great experience in Boston in 2013 during the ALCS. So the Tigers, (laughs) Tigers go there for Game One. It's I can't remember who was pitching for Boston. I know uh, Sanchez, Anibal Sanchez, pitched for the Tigers and had like a no hitter into the seventh inning. Tigers end up winning like four to one or whatever it was. Tigers just dominated. They win Game One. 
we end up we end up like stumbling around and we're in the Tigers team hotel. We see Justin Verlander through walking <laughs> through the lobby, and we end up uh, sit, we're just like we're gonna grab a nightcap before we go home. It was like twelve thirty. It was pretty late, twelve thirty one a.m. Obviously, if the players for a playoff night game are already like showered and out of there and drinking in the hotel bar, it was pretty late. And uh, our, we end up having Anibal Sanchez and his family come in and sit like three tables behind us. Uh, Joaquin, right. Joaquin Benoit was one table over with like eight of his family members. He was with his homies. Yeah, <laughs> was like oh, was homie yeah you're right. You're right. It was his boys. You're he had right. his entourage with yeah, him. Entourage. Oh, it was a homie table. It was yeah, <laughs> homie table. Right. And then uh, your least favorite athlete in the history of anything was uh, walking in, and it's because of this night. Walks into the bar and sits down. It was Drew Smiley. Tell <laughs> tell the Drew Smiley story. Drew Smiley. All right. He got Poppy out. Like I don't know if you – so the first game, the guy was – whoever, Anibal Sanchez, he pitched like a no-hitter into what, the, the, was it the seventh the or seventh, eighth seventh or something? Seventh or eighth, yeah, yeah. And then Smiley comes in. He, he gets out. He pops out uh, – what was it? Ellsbury, uh, I think. It was Ortiz. Somebody. Yeah, yeah. He, got, he, got, he got one or two people out, and then he left. So we're sitting there at the bar, and I, he, he comes – he's with his girlfriend or something like that. We knew he, they, were, they were kind of bragging about him. He comes in. He's literally, I could touch him with my right arm, like that close to me. And they get done paying the bill, and I say, hey, great job getting Poppy out. Doesn't even look my way. I know he heard me. Mm-hmm. So then I look at him. I'm like, all right, okay, I, you know, whatever. So then I say it again, like maybe a minute later. Nothing again. <laughs> and he might have looked over at me. Like I'm talking about, like, there is a 0% chance this guy does not hear me, unless he's deaf in his left ear and, like, half deaf in his right ear. Like there's no <laughs> chance this guy does not hear me. And I, that's to this day is the most disrespectful thing anyone's ever done to me. Well, and every single year, I get this gift of him getting hurt and out on the IR early in the season every year. So I'm just like, I can't wait till next year when he blows out his left arm. Were you, were you uh, a, a non fan of Smiley before this incident or because of this incident? I was excited to tell him, you know, great job getting Poppy out. I didn't even honestly, I don't even, I didn't even know who the guy was. <laughs> now you you have an ultimate Shonen Freud with. With Drew Smiley, he just the guy gets hurt every year, and I get the text message: "GC Smiley, Smiley." Yeah. <laughs> you know what they say? Out. That's what they say about karma. There was a uh, similarly. There was a. Uh, I went into Boston for a game, probably a few years prior to this, when John Lackey was pitching for the Red Sox, and uh, some friends and I went out for beers after the game, and or beers, I should say, and um, and. Uh, Lackey comes in. He may have been, I don't know if he pitched that night or he was off the night. Lackey comes in with, I think, his wife and his kids. Next thing you know, they're doing shots. And and we just started, you know, the joking. Uh, the, yeah, the kids. The kids were doing shots. It was fantastic. And then we got some pictures with him, and he was a super nice guy. So it's funny how it can go one way or the other really quickly, and your opinion oh, has forever changed. It was, it was brutal. And the thing is, the only he didn't even have to acknowledge. He just had to, like, throw me, like, a finger, like, raise. Like or just like yeah, thanks, man. And it turned around like nothing. It was it was like I don't, you don't exist type of thing. I didn't even say anything offensive. I just said great job. He just had to turn around and be like thanks, man. Yeah, it's, yeah. It. it's not like you asked White. for his picture or his autograph. You're just no. like hey, man, great great job. Like that was it. No, no. So I think we were feeling down at that point. This is another part of the story that's pretty funny too. Uh, so uh, what's his uh, Benoit? Was that the guy the, the reliever's name? Yeah, was sitting right Benoit. there with his, the homie table. The yeah. homie table. So we go over, we're like, oh, we didn't get any respect off this guy. So Spiro tries to pick up the – Spiro goes, all right, you think I'm going to buy, you know, whatever, to pick up their tab on their, their drinks or whatever. They're drinking, you know, it wasn't like they were lining them up. 
Uh, I think they were just like having one like little nightcap or whatever. So you're picking up the Geico. tab from an MLB player at this point. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. So I said that would be you know kind of a cool move. You know, pick up the you know pick up their tab, see what it is. Uh, or, you know, just come over and say hi when and then leave. You know, it's a power move. Yeah. Uh, we tell the waiter, yeah, we're gonna pick it up. He comes back. He goes, all right, seven hundred and fifty dollars. They're all drinking. They're all drinking Johnny Walker Blues. And we we're not expecting this. Dude, we're, we're like with Poncho and Sancho next to Benoit. Like, we're not thinking that they're drinking top shelf Scotch whiskey. Like, we're just thinking, you know, they're drinking maybe like Patron shots. And there's like, there were like seven of them. There wasn't like it was like you know there wasn't it wasn't like a table of twenty. It was saw as a table of seven guys, his friends. He did a good job. Closed out the game. Let's go pick up a round. Seven hundred and fifty dollars, <laughs> a mortgage payment. <laughs> Which uh, it, it was somewhere in there. I, I can't remember if that was the exact price. It was a lot, and I, I bid it and 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 paid it, but because well, so it was already in my hand. I mean, it's like, well, yeah. So the question, <laughs> but Justin, the question is, for seven hundred and fifty dollars, was it worth it to be able to tell that story? Yeah, it was worth. Oh, it. it's, it's going to be continuing. Dude, Benoit was fucking shocked. Oh, like, I, what? <laughs> Benoit looks over and was like, "What the fuck?" Like, just... Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> what? So okay. I mean, the next night, you talk about a juxtaposition. We have this. We're on this high. We have the ultimate just triumph in game one. Tigers just dominate the game. We're bumping in all the players afterward. We buy Benoit around. Buy, we're just like on this ultimate road trip high. The next night, we're at game two. Max Scherzer at Fenway Park. Same thing as the game before. Like, no hitter. No hitter through seven. Hit through yeah. seven. So we're doing the math. We're like, okay, in 16 innings, the Red Sox have one hit. Like, this is waking. The Tigers are up five to – or four to nothing at that point. Ended up being five to one. So we're like, you know, they got this. The, the Red Sox are already down four runs in this game with, like, six outs left. They, they can't even get – two hits let alone four runs so i mean it's it's over that was the logic most people listening to this podcast already know what happened red sox load the bases leland pulls scherzer uh it's just a nightmare your boy drew smiley has ellsbury jacoby ellsbury down one two ends up walking him on the next three pitches joaquin benoit who was our friend from the night before comes in and grooves one on the first pitch of david ortiz Grand Slam, 5-5, game pretty much over, even though it was tied. I mean, we knew what the deal was. You had to basically hold back the Red Sox fans who were, like, screaming in my face because you knew I was just going to lose my mind. I, I remember – That was the loud that's, – that's, like, the second or first loudest of any stadium I've ever – That's that was, that was a crazy moment. It was so Top three loud. moment in sports for me. Top Deafening. three moment in sports. Deafening. And we were at the Michigan State game. We were at the Michigan State U of M game, so that's – yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot as a as a native Bostonian. I got to say, at that point, you got to remember what year that was. That was 2013. That was the year of the Boston Marathon bombing, and the, and that was yeah. the year Boston strong, and that was the year the whole city rallied around the team. Bruins made a run to the Stanley Cup Finals that summer, and then the Red Sox. You know that that moment that was, and that was the Sunday night, right? The Sunday, yeah, yep. because that was an insane day in Boston sports because that was uh, the Patriots in the afternoon. They had, had just yeah. rallied. They yeah. had just rallied to beat the Saints with uh, Scott Zola having one of the most ridiculous uh, uh, radio calls of all time yelling about sh- unicorns, show ponies, and where's the beef when Brady hits Kembrell Tompkins for the game-winning touchdown. Four hours later, Ortiz hits the grand slam, and and then the Red Sox. We were, at, we were at Fenway Park. Uh, watching. The stadium was pretty much full, and everyone was watching it. And then when he hit that touchdown, I wasn't even paying attention. I was on my phone or something like that. 
and the, it was almost as loud as the grand slam that Poppy hit. Like it was, people were going nuts. They showed it up on the big on the big board. Yeah, it was on, yeah. it was on all of the, um, the screens. On the, we were watching it on the concourse. Oh, okay, um, yeah. but yeah, Fenway's, was, Fenway's one of my favorite venues, man. That that place is awesome. It's really cool to but, know that you were there in the same place as Ted Williams and and all the legendary players before him. Yeah. Oh yeah, and J- Jag brought up the Boston Marathon. I don't know if you I, you'll probably remember this Gorman win. It was like maybe 35 or 40 seconds after the Grand Slam. Ortiz had like just crossed home plate seconds earlier. I'm sitting in my seat just catatonic after standing catatonic for half a minute. And the woman leans over to me like right in the heat of this moment where I'm just crushed. My soul is destroyed. And she says, you should be rooting for Boston anyway. Do you know what happened here at the marathon? Oh, no. I, I was like, I was like... I, I, I remember. I don't know if you heard her, but I remember. I maybe you might remember me turning to you and being like, "You got to tell her to shut the hell up. Like you got <laughs> you to like, get this girl out of my face. Like not like I'm gonna punch her, not like that, but like I'm gonna go kill myself. Basically, it was more like that. Yeah, like, I was in the same comatose like, state as you. Yeah, like I, it was like the worst moment of my entire life. And she's like, "You should be rooting for Boston anyway." It's like so now she's shaming me for rooting for the Tigers. It's just like, oh my god. Please do not judge all Boston fans on this young lady that was uh, next to you at Fenway Park, please. So we've had happier times, too. Like The Tigers eliminated our mutual enemy, Jag, the Yankees, in 2011 in the division series. Valverde strikes out A-Rod to end it in Game 5, the deciding Game 5. And uh, James and I ended up... What we didn't know, like how bad of an area the Bronx was at the time. <laughs> at the time. So yeah. we're like, supposedly the Bronx is not a good area. No, no. Like hey, we we knew it wasn't the best area, but we're like, oh yeah. So the the Tigers win at Yankee Stadium. We're going nuts. We got all our Tigers gear on. We were already threatened at the bar earlier for no. Oh, of course. We all we did was have a Tiger shirt on. That was enough to get threatened. Um, but uh, so the Tigers three win inc- three or four separate incidents. At that same bar, yeah. Before and after, yeah. So this would be the new like, Yankee Stadium, right? New Yankee Stadium. Yep. This was uh, two. We didn't years. say a word. It w- we didn't even say a word. No, it no. Was just walking. No provocation. So we're we, the Tigers win. We're we're like, all right, we're gonna. We don't have our, our flights. Not till like six o'clock the next night. Like so, we're like, we're gonna go nuts tonight. We're gonna blow it out. Mm-hmm. We're gonna go out and de- we're like, we're in New York, right? We don't realize like New York is not the Bronx is not New York. I mean, it is, but it isn't. So we're like, all right, we're gonna go out and hit the. T- so we go back to the bar. We're ordering a bunch of shots. We end up ordering a bottle of champagne and just walking the streets of the Bronx, like spraying it on each other and drinking it. And <laughs> we're just screaming. So we're walking around just wasted, no, like no particular direction. And we look at each other. We're like, we're in a really bad area. We, <laughs> we've passed by. Like, we've walked like five blocks and we haven't seen one house that isn't boarded up. Like there's no like no one's living here. We're in a ghost town. I mean, you remember that night, right, Gorms? Oh, I mean, yeah. I think I've got like videos from that night. I was. Uh, I, I remember in the uh, famous highlight of Derek Jeter diving into the seats after that foul ball yep. at the old Yankee Stadium. Yep. I was at that game. It was 2004, uh, and it was when the uh, it was about July 1st or so. Yankees that game went 13 innings. Manny Ramirez hit a home run for the Red Sox, take the lead in the top of the 13th. Saw a six-year-old Yankee fan crying on his dad's shoulders. The most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And then, <laughs> and then the Yankees come back and win it in the bottom of the 13th. I see a Red Sox fan crying on his dad's shoulder, and it was absolutely heartbreaking. And the and uh, I remember we're in our Red Sox jerseys. Yankees just swept us at the time in 2004. Everybody figured they'd put away the division at that point. It was a huge lead. It was well before the historic comeback and all that. And so we're crushed into the old Yankee Stadium in those tiny ass concourses, trying to get out of there uh, alive. 
and uh, a custodian there sees my Red Sox jersey, starts pointing at me and going, sweep, sweep, sweep. And I go, hey, that's your job, isn't it? Oh, God. Oh, got him. <laughs> and, uh, and then even the Yankee fans laughing at that. And then stuck on a train in the Bronx, like you said, not the best area, back to my buddy's house in Connecticut at 3 in the morning and then driving back to work the next day. And, oh, it was that was uh, an unfortunate incident, not a place you want to be. Well, unlike you, we ran into a transvestite person in the Bronx. Yeah, that we did is, not have that. 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 Get at? Is that what you were trying to get at when you said you remember, don't you? Yeah, you, you know exactly <laughs> where I'm going with this. So we're walking around in the, like the absolute hood we're, we're you know and this we, is 2011 too this is back when when it well when it wasn't like you couldn't get fired if you know what i mean like it would see a transvestite person on anywhere it's like oh that, that's strange i don't see that very often there weren't like tv shows about it like you know <laughs> right. what i mean like well we so we're like I, I, honestly that's the first one i've ever the first first one first person i've ever met like that so yeah, we were like, this, "That's not possible." Well, you know, you're you're six five. I'm six four. I think this transvestite lady was six three. <laughs> I mean, it was one of the bigger uh, women I've seen. Lady, uh, wait, 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 for, wait for the reveal. So, wait well, for the reveal. so, so this this person, this transvestite person, is um, six foot three and just really deep voice, like giant baseball size <laughs> Adam's apple with like the worst wig you've ever seen. It was not like a convincing presentation like Caitlyn Jenner, for example. And so Gorman and I are just wasted. And Gorman's like, you know, we're walking in front of this liquor store. And this uh, this person comes up to us and just like, hey, baby, you know, what's up? And uh, Gorman's like, hey, hey, are you a chick? Hey, hey. <laughs> like, hey baby. Yeah, like, hey, baby. Like, you know, like, you're like getting like fake kind of heading on this this person and uh she's like you know this uh this may surprise you but uh, i was once a man and you're like no way no way i, I don't believe <laughs> totally it. playing along yeah what ha- what happened then gorman uh we <laughs> we offered her a, a sum of money to, to prove it <laughs> oh well this just went south quickly right there on the street right there just right there <laughs> yeah right the fastest money she ever made yeah so this this shows to our level of inebriation at that point, but uh, you know, I I, I got to ask you. We've been all over the country, seeing the Tigers play, the Red Wings, whatever. What is your favorite spot to go? I mean, do, uh, is it Fenway? Is that the best place you've seen Wrigley? What's the best place to go as a visiting fan? Best venue or best city? Best venue. Fenway. I, I, I for some reason I, my family's from from Boston. Like you know, back in the day, you know, nineteen twenties, thirties, forties. So the Fenway for me was going there was was pretty awesome and and the stadium really wasn't it it was just like the people there were a lot nicer than New York we were in New York earlier and they were like oh yeah Boston people are you know rude or whatever not one single bad comment besides the one lady who gave you all the condescending remarks well, sh- well, yeah. well but, newsflash Red Sox fans are not nice to Yankees fans yeah that's a good point well, but even but you even, probably you probably are mean fans, to them we were, we were hanging out we were getting threats. That, Someone got in Spiro's face in the bar. We were just ordering drinks. Didn't say a word to anybody. We were very conscious about that. I yeah. mean, just everyone there is a tough guy, good fellas, Bronx tale, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like, you know, welcome to the Bronx, that kind of thing. Boston was, you know, hey, how you doing? You're from, oh, you're from Detroit. Oh, Detroit. Yeah, nice. Great baseball city, that kind of thing. Like, yeah. Almost like a St. Louis type. Like, when we were at Cardinal Stadium, the, the old one, and people were just great conversations, talking about the McGuire days and stuff like that. Yeah, no, for sure, Boston. Fenway Park. So far, yeah. City is the city, though. Like, I, 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 nothing beats New York. San Francisco was fun. 
New York was is every time we go, we always have a blast. Yeah, we have a really good time in New York. And if I'm not like going to a game, one of my favorite places to watch a game is in Las Vegas. And you well, know, yeah, yeah, just being in the sports book, like being able to gamble, I think that's awesome. And and one of our our stories there, we obviously we're friends with um, Jack Johnson, who's a defenseman for the Columbus Blue Jackets now was traded by the Los Angeles Kings in 2012. So we would go on this Vegas trip every single year uh, with a bunch of guys, and we uh, were talking at California Pizza Kitchen on one of these trips going into it's, uh, the summer before the hockey season, and I'm asking Jack, I'm like, hey, you know, you and the Kings look pretty good this year. What do you think? He goes, yeah, I think we have a good shot. I'm like, oh, you guys are going off. Yeah, they off- just made those big trades. They just made the Simone Gagne and then the, uh, the other it- guy from uh, Columbus, the guy who just wanted to get out the uh, – was the guy who was from Philly, blonde hair dude? No, you're thinking of Jeff Carter. That trade hadn't happened yet because yeah. that trade was for. Oh, back. that's right. He got traded. Never mind. He got traded. Never mind. <laughs> but okay. so Simone anyway, Gagne. Gagne. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're just talking with Jack. We're like, yeah, 25 to one's pretty good odds. They got like a great goalie, whatever. Got some good pieces. So I'm like, I'm gonna go bet it. I won some money playing blackjack. It was like 700 bucks or something. I'm like, I'm gonna put it all on the king. Screw it. Like whatever. And it was very just like if I hadn't won in blackjack, I never make the bet. I didn't necessarily think it was a great bet or anything. I thought the kings were a good value at 25 to one. So I end up placing the bet at the Mirage Sportsbook, and Jack's like, okay, yeah, like I think we got a good shot this year. Good bet. You know, good good value. Whatever. And uh, the season goes on, you know, the Kings are kind of hanging on by a thread, vying for the eighth seed, like not a great uh, a chance to make the playoffs. It was like a coin flip, basically, if they'd even get in. And they end up trading Jack at the trade deadline to Columbus for Jeff Carter. And so now I have this 25 to 1, like massive ticket. It paid like $18,000 if it won. <laughs> I have this ticket in my hand at 25 to 1. And then I have my best friend who just got traded. And like the last thing he would want to see is the team win the cup that just traded him. Like that'd be like the worst thing ever. So I, it was this constant source of tension. So we ha- we're at the next Vegas trip, like the following year. And it's in the middle of the they're, NH- in, the they're in the playoffs. It's the we- at this time the Western Conference Late. Finals. Yeah, yeah. It Late. was it was the final game of the way. It was like Game Four of the Western Conference Finals, and the Kings were at Steve Wynn's Steakhouse with the guys. It's like you, Jack, me, and two other guys. And the Kings score, and the game's on at the bar, and the Kings score a goal to basically win the game. It was like to go up two goals with like a minute left, empty net or whatever. And I jump up at dinner and just I go to high five Jack. It was a natural. Oh no! Nat- I, I wasn't like trying to throw it in his face, but I got this ticket. I'm like, my team's going to the Cup Finals. I got this twenty five to one. It's like an eighteen thousand dollar ticket. I'm not a high roller. That's like a ton of money. That's a ton of money to me. And uh, so I go to high five Jack, and he just looks at me like he wanted to kill me. I mean, that was one of the more. <laughs> you you remember that, right? Oh yeah, we were taking. Both of us were taking like five bathroom breaks because the because the uh the game was on in the bar <laughs> yeah yeah right you're just going i gotta go to the bathroom again sorry <laughs> <laughs> we kept leaving them there <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> check out so they score and i run back up to the table i'm like yes kings win and go to high five them. the guy just wanted to shoot my that's, face that's off. when the record scratch yeah. noise comes in in the middle of it and you're like Arr! it was so bad it right. was so it no, was like jack was cool about it he was he was he was like oh it's, no, it's cool i'm happy for you i'm happy for you happy for you yeah. yeah, that's yeah. all right. No, that's, that's all right. All right, all right. He, he, he knew he was pissed. Yeah, yeah, he had to have been pissed. <laughs> Vegas, Vegas is a great town. I mean, we'll finish on this point uh, and get you out of here. I know you got you got some stuff going on tonight, Gorman. But uh, we were talking about this the other day, and this has nothing to do with sports, really. But I, I just find the the technology today is mostly a good thing. The developments we've seen in technology is mostly wonderful. But the smartphone has, like, really ruined the single guy in Vegas act. Like, 
we, like, oh, brutal. When we were single in Vegas, like we would go around telling like didn't guys, girls didn't matter. We would tell everyone like, yeah, we're Olympic athletes or like, yeah, we got a record label or like we always had these crazy stories. And you used to be able to get away with this stuff, but like if I tell a girl or a guy or whomever at the bar now, like if I'm a single guy, I go go up to a girl at the bar and say like yeah, I'm a pro hockey player. It's like, okay, what's your name? I'm going to Google you. I mean, th- these lies are so easily debunked like in six seconds, which wasn't the case even five, six years ago. Oh, I was I was Jack's agent for three years straight <laughs> in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, oh, he yeah, actually, he guy, actually yeah, was a agent. celebrity. Like, So he actually could play his like actual card if he wanted to. And you were, you were oh, coming yeah. in like, yeah, I'm his agent. I represent him. Oh, and then for, for guys like Jack, though, it's like perfect because you just roll up and you get. There was one girl. I'm not, I'm not trying to out him. Uh, back in back a while ago, that was uh, he. It was like the Miss USA pageant was going on, and like Miss North Dakota is sitting right in the table next to us. Jack goes down with his smartphone out. I think he already had the Google Images search already <laughs> ready to go. Oh no. <laughs> Well, because the and first just, thing yeah, is oh, like yeah. the first thing is like, yeah, you're not you're that's not real. Like, you know, you're not really this pro hockey player. You're not really this guy's agent or you're not really a, a rapper who's wrapped with Eminem. Like, you know, it's oh, but come on. Everybody in Detroit claims to know Eminem by one degree of separation. Pretty much. You would think so. My only claim with Eminem is that I saw him driving on Maple in West Bloomfield at one point. At one point. But that's that's my that's my only. <laughs> what was he driving? He was driving an Escalade. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he had his window down, too. It was, like, clearly him. I pulled up right next to him at a red light. He was in the turn lane, and I pulled up to him. I was like, oh, my God, it's Eminem. He had, the, like, spinner rims. It was, uh, like, a cream Escalade. Um, <laughs> Must have been early, mid-2000s. It was, like, 2000. Uh, yeah, Spreewells. I think it was, like, 2006, 2007. I was early college at the time. Quick uh, quick aside, uh, 2002, I was a senior at Syracuse, and my neighbor around the corner was Dwight Freeney in another apartment. And he uh, was from the Connecticut suburbs, drive this old beater car that we'd always see this Connecticut plates drive by to his apartment. He gets drafted 11th overall in the 2002 draft. The following Monday, we see this brand new virgin white with the rims and the video game monitors in the back of the front oh, seats yeah. roll up We're like oh i guess they give you credit when you get drafted 11th overall oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah he, he yeah. probably had no problem getting alone at that point but <laughs> all right with james, the video well, game in the back nice J- back james, box in the back <laughs> yep james is the the czar of a good time uh you are the most universally well-liked guy I know. No one's ever come up to me and said, oh, I don't like that guy. So uh, always a good time with James Gorman. Great outro. I want you to be in studio next time we do this. I think you're visiting Detroit in December. December. Yeah, Yeah. so let's uh, let's throw a pair of headphones on you, and we'll just tell some more crazy stories of our, our, uh, you know, travails on the road, so to speak. Love to, man. All right, James Gorman joining us from Louisville. It was basically just a a story time with, with a buddy of mine. Uh, frankly, I had a, a few listeners of this show request uh, James to be on, and I don't blame <laughs> them because James is uh, one of the one of the more fun guys you can ever hope to meet. So, uh, James, looking forward to talking in December, buddy. Take care. Talk to you guys later. James Gorman joining us, and uh, that was a, a good finish to the show. We are working on our uh, last segment, which was formerly called Winners and Losers. I'm thinking of changing it to just things I like, things I don't like. I felt a little weird calling some people I, I actually like and admire a loser every week. Seemed it's a little, little harsh. It seemed a little excessively harsh. And, you know, some of them I think may be losers, but uh, some people were getting that label that didn't maybe necessarily deserve it. So um, we are working on that uh, segment for next time. 
Uh, we are still working on locking down Charles Rogers, but uh, uh, new news today. I spoke with Mike Barwis, former trainer at the University of Michigan under Rich Rodriguez, uh, and he has agreed to appear on the program. We are still working on an exact date, but it looks pretty good for next week. And I think that'll be one of the more interesting interviews we've had. Uh, Mike is a really interesting guy, has his own gym in Plymouth right now, and um, he has a lot of insight into what happened during Rich Rodriguez's three years at the University of Michigan, some of the adversity they faced, dealing with some boosters that were never on board with that. So particularly if you're a college football fan, uh, especially on the Michigan side, I think that'll be a really interesting discussion. So I, I would imagine Mike Barwis will be our next episode uh, early next week. Hopefully uh, we will confirm that shortly and uh, get that out on Twitter. Again, you can follow me at Darko State News. Our producer, Jag, thank you for joining us. It's good to be back with you. Always. Good. You can follow me at Jag in Detroit. I'll get my own cheap plug in there. J-A-G, yeah, Jag do. in Detroit. Jag in Detroit, our wonderful producer. Uh, we are going to get uh, get that Mike Barwis interview booked ASAP, and we will blast that out as soon as we have details. So thank you for joining us. This is uh, Justin Spiro, Episode 12 of the Spiro Avenue Podcast. Thank you again to Chris Castellani, Baseball Casanova Podcast, and James Gorman, our good friend, calling from Louisville. We will see you next week with episode 13 of the Spiro Avenue podcast.